Hello and welcome to episode 25 of The Beethoven Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to talk about the so-called Kreutzer Sonata for violin and piano, Opus 47, completed in 1803. According to numerous commentators, this sonata represents not merely a step forward from the very interesting and likable violin sonatas of Opus 30, which we discussed in episode 19, but a leap, and a very athletic one at that, into Beethoven's second period, and a newly audacious stylistic manner. But of course, not every Beethoven authority sees this work in quite the same way. Louis Lockwood says of it that it represents the summit of his earlier violin sonata style, raising that style to a brilliant pitch of virtuosity. And of course, there are plenty of musicologists who will be happy to remind us that all such talk of periods or divisions are merely intellectual constructs, and perhaps arbitrary ones at that, which we employ to make things seem simpler than they really are. And it is certainly true that no historical divisions are watertight, and it is a little misleading to suggest that all of Beethoven's works follow a straightforward path towards some stylistic or creative goal. Nevertheless, it remains clear that the Kreutzer Sonata is a remarkable work and stands alone among his sonatas for violin and piano. But before we get to the work itself, I want to briefly recount some of the backstory here, one of the more interesting ones associated with Beethoven's works to this point. In 1803, Beethoven met violinist-composer George Augustus Paul Green Bridgetower, who at age 24 had already made a great success in Vienna. Above and beyond his considerable prowess as a violinist, Bridgetower, whose father was West Indian and his mother European, was a fascinating character. He cultivated an exotic image, promoting himself as a son of the African prince, but also claimed to have studied with Haydn briefly and was frequently associated with one of his admirers, violinist composer Giovanni Battista Viati, one of the major figures in the new French school of violin performance. Beethoven appeared to take an immediate liking to the young man, connecting him to some wealthy aristocrats who might one day serve as patrons. On his part, Bridgetower, wishing to cement their relationship, urged Beethoven to write for him a new violin sonata, which they might perform together at an upcoming concert. Beethoven already had a head start on the project, with the finale he had initially composed for his violin sonata Opus 31, number 1, which he later replaced, presumably because he considered it too brilliant a movement to fit with the earlier ones. In the end, after a postponement of the original concert, Beethoven and Bridgetower performed the new sonata together quite successfully, even though once again Beethoven's piano score was not fully notated on the day of the performance, and Beethoven's admiration for the young violinist increased by leaps and bounds. Beethoven had apparently hinted to Bridgetower that the work, when published, would be dedicated to him. But the two had a falling out, which Bridgetower later somewhat fantastically described as some silly quarrel about a girl, and the sonata was instead dedicated to another violinist, Rudolf Kreutzer. Beethoven had admired Kreutzer as well, spending some pleasurable time with him, 
But while Kreutzer may well have appreciated Beethoven's friendship, he was by no means a convert to Beethoven's music. Representing the French tradition as he chose to do, he was unenthusiastic about all German music, and he made no exception for Ludwig, once, apparently, walking out during a performance of his second symphony, and later referring to the violin sonata in question as outrageously unintelligible. It is widely assumed that he never performed the work in public. But ignorance is bliss, and Beethoven assumed that Kreutzer would be honored by the dedication, and so directed his publisher accordingly. The third aspect to the backstory for this sonata has to do with its role in Tolstoy's famous novella named after the sonata. I'll talk about this a little later. On to the sonata itself. It's the first movement of the sonata that has been most heralded over the years, and that's where we'll focus most of our attention as well. In discussing the opening of the slow introduction to the first movement, in A major, initially 3-4 time, and marked Adagio Sostenuto, Swafford, in his biography of Beethoven, characterizes the solo violin's four-bar opening statement as impassioned and virile, the violinist slashing across the strings. The pianist's four-bar response, he suggests, is pensively ambiguous and minorish, setting up an essential counterforce. There's little question that these two opening statements, which I'll play in a minute, were meant to be oppositional to some extent as an indication of things to come. But I hear the opening violin phrase as itself somewhat pensive, even allowing for a little vulnerability, as demonstrated by the rapid decrease in volume after the initial attack and the poignant appoggiatura that resolves down a half-step to the final chord, an appoggiatura that quickly becomes an important motivic element. But, of course, the impression one gains from the opening bars has a lot to do with the way the violinist attacks those initial multiple stops, and the fact that the violinist begins the first movement by itself with such a dominating sonority is quite exceptional although very much in keeping with Beethoven's own description of the work as written in a highly concerto-like style, almost in the manner of a concerto. Here are the opening two thematic statements. Swafford's reference to the ambiguity of the piano's response, starting in measure 5, is well taken, since it so quickly abandons the A major tonality. 
Although the pianist opening phrase is melodically almost identical to the violinist's, the pianist's first chord is an A minor chord, and from A minor we move quickly in the direction of C major, pushed in that direction by an ascending chromatic bass line which may have caught your ear. As you heard just a bit of at the end of my excerpt, the appoggiatura motive I just mentioned continues to play an important role as the introduction unfolds, although the violin's multiple stops are eventually replaced by recurring half-step motives, usually ascending, which also occur in the piano accompaniment. These half-step motives appear to owe their genesis to similar motives in the finale, which, as you'll remember, was composed first in this case. Here, in the introduction, the key of C major also fades eventually, replaced by what appears to be movement toward the key of D minor, on which we eventually pause with a firmata ending the introduction. While the introduction is a reasonably introspective one, the exposition, marked presto, after a switch to cut time, is a particularly dynamic one. The first subject begins with another ascending half-step, then plunges down a sixth before introducing a distinctive new repeated pattern of staccato quarter notes in which the first note of each measure reaches higher and higher. Here's a simplified example. Employing this pattern, Beethoven crescendos to a sforzando climax on a G major multiple stop chord, which then cadences to a C major chord held by a fermata. Beethoven's pause on C major probably comes as a bit of a surprise, since for the first six bars of the first subject, we really seem to be in A minor. And when the piano presents its version of the first subject, we find ourselves back, seemingly, in A minor. But again, Beethoven flips the switch at the last minute, and the first subject concludes on a C major chord again, a very elaborate one this time, ornamented by a miniature piano cadenza. So the first subject features a strong repeated pattern of staccato quarter notes, which gradually ascends, a little tonal ambiguity, and a lot of stopping and starting first between the introduction and the first subject, not terribly surprising, and then within the first subject, a little more surprising. At this point in a typical sonata form, we often hear a more or less continuous segue into the modulatory transition section, which sometimes even begins by quoting the first theme. But not this time. Here, the break is a dramatic one, and the modulatory transition is highly contrasting, or at least so it initially appears, with its octave leaps in the piano left hand and crescendoing arpeggios in the right hand. But that doesn't mean that there are no links between the transition and the first theme. Half-steps, mostly ascending, dominate for several measures, 
although they unfold slowly, mostly in longer note values at first, and in measures 5 through 7 of the transition, we actually hear a variant of the staccato quarter note pattern that played such an important role in the first subject. There are new elements here too, of course, new figuration patterns with pulsating octaves in both the piano and violin with an increased reliance on sforzando accents, often underlined by multiple stops in the violin. Here is the first part of the rather long transition. And of course, we modulate to E major, the normal key of the dominant, for the second theme. That second theme, marked dolce, is warm and graceful, unfolding slowly in the violin, mostly in whole notes, with simple chordal accompaniment from the piano. It's very romantic sounding, arguably even sensuous, but when the piano responds, it's in a much more austere E minor, with the violinist dangling octave E's above it. This switch from major to minor, of course, echoes a similar maneuver from the introduction to the opening presto, although the effect is admittedly quite different here. This section closes on a fermata on a secondary dominant seventh chord on D, which strongly suggests that the next section will abandon E minor and quite possibly move in the direction of G major. Here is the second subject, fairly brief, closing on the fermata I just referred to. Following the fermata, we launch again into a faster-moving, more rhythmically vigorous section which resembles the transition we heard leading up to the second subject, to some extent, although it begins in the violin with a somewhat more distinctive melodic statement before lapsing into more conventional, repeated patterns typical of a transition. What this is transitioning to is another matter. While it begins in G major, it soon makes its way back to E minor and presents a third theme. This is more or less the equivalent of what we've labeled in some earlier episodes as a closing section or closing theme. 
but it's considerably more powerful than the sort of thematic idea we've usually encountered at this point in an exposition. Several commentators have singled out this third theme for its distinctive and memorable qualities, and it is, in fact, frequently described as the most dynamic and compelling theme in the exposition. This is true in part, one would suppose, because the development section to come devotes so much time to unpacking its potential. And yet it's often hard to describe what makes a melody great or effective in its particular context by pointing out specific details of construction. Ascending half-steps again play a major role here. In the first five bars of the theme, presented by the piano in a manner that seems to be at least partially derived from the opening theme of the third movement rondo, which, as you'll recall, Beethoven composed first. Here, those ascending half-steps are repeated vigorously, almost obstinately, introduced first as an eighth-note upbeat going to a longer-accented note. First, it's the leading tone going to the tonic note in E minor and that's heard three times in a row. Then the pattern is moved. The third of the tonic chord is then approached from below by a half step, and then the fifth, and then the upper octave in the same manner, each time against a repeated tonic E minor chord in the left hand. This is an unusually dramatic opening gesture. With the theme played in octaves by the piano, it summons up a sense of power and perhaps even exhilaration. The second part of the third theme, still played in octaves, presents a new idea, which the violinist now accompanies with periodic multiple-stop pizzicati. This new idea consists of a narrow range descending quarter-note melodic figure alternating slurs and staccato marks which starts on D natural and then descends a couple of steps before winding its way back to its starting note, and then introduces its most dramatic gesture, a descending leap of a fourth. This level of melodic activity then slows down to a pair of whole notes, the first trilled and the second accented, on what we now hear briefly as the new tonic note of C major. The first two bars of this new phrase are then repeated down a third and extended, pulling us back toward the key of E minor to prepare us for the violin's version of the new theme. Here's a simplified version, starting on the fourth measure of the third theme and including the new idea I just described. So, obviously, we're experiencing a strong sense of melodic contrast in the second part of this third theme. But in terms of melody alone, it's difficult to think of these measures as all that remarkable. What really gives these four bars their distinctive quality is what's going on harmonically, and that by comparison with the static harmonic identity of the first four bars of the theme. Because after the tonic chord of E minor is pounded into our ears for the first four bars, we now flip quickly, or at least briefly appear to have flipped, into C major by means of a pair of secondary dominant chords which first seem to tonicize D minor and then C major. 
So, in other words, after the dogged repetition of a single E minor chord in the first four bars, we're now exposed to a much quicker harmonic rhythm, a series of new chords that seem to be taking us in new tonal directions rather quickly, and as a result, we are likely to experience a surge in momentum at that point. But, as I indicated earlier, that momentum is short-lived because the last three bars return us to E minor as the violin prepares for its version of the closing theme. Here is the entire piano version of the closing theme, all 11 measures, with the insistence on the chord of E minor for the first four bars, followed by the more rapid chord changes in the next four. The violinist version of the theme is even more dramatic because the accented downbeats in the violin are now echoed three octaves lower in the piano left hand in the second half of each measure, creating an even greater sense of urgency. And when the violin reaches the second part of the theme and introduces that second melodic idea, the piano doubles every note of the violinist line down three octaves even the trill creating an unusual effect. After the violinist has taken its turn at this third theme, the violinist and piano combine to tack on a couple of repetitions of the final measures of that theme before heading to a codetta, which consists of almost frantic alternating figuration patterns taking us to the end of the exposition. The development section provides little or no respite from the storm, focusing as it does on the dynamic third theme from the exposition. It does, however, begin quietly, almost placidly in the piano, and initially it's in the key of F major, somewhat surprising given the fact that the exposition had closed on an A minor chord. But we don't stay in F major for long. After just five measures, the piano crescendos into a chromatic modulation to G minor for the entrance of the violin, and at that point, much of the earlier intensity is re-established, although the violin also enters the fray rather quietly at first and then crescendos to a climax. Here are the final measures of the exposition going into the development section with the piano presenting the third theme in F major, rather quietly at first, and then handing it to the violin in G minor. The violin makes its statement and promptly hands the theme back to the piano, now in E flat major, with the pianist now reintroducing that echoing effect of the opening motives between right hand and left and the violinist offering an accompaniment of wide-span staccato arpeggios as we move to C minor. 
Let's hear that much of the development section, starting with the closing measures of the exposition. My excerpt faded just after arriving at a new subsection within the development, where the violin begins to play with the opening half-step motive against a more complex piano accompaniment based on eighth notes in broken third patterns. Soon the instruments shift roles as the level of intensity increases, and, as you would expect in a development section, we also shift tonal centers first to B-flat minor, and then shortly thereafter to E-flat major, and beyond. The level of activity becomes rather furious in places, especially as the piano begins to move up the scale in leaping octaves beginning low in the left-hand range. But there are quieter passages as well, as for example, when the pianist is reduced to a simpler accompaniment pattern, and the violinist rather innocently and gently quotes the third theme in its entirety, not just the opening motives, in the key of D-flat major. Here's an excerpt of the rather bombastic passage leading up to that gentle quotation. But, as you heard near the end of my excerpt, that brief lyrical respite within the storm does not last for long, and the pace soon picks up again. The two instruments alternate leaping passages in eighth notes with heavily accented downbeats as we continue to dash through different key centers, coming together periodically for pulsating eighth note passages in multiple octaves. Eventually, the level of activity slows, and the violinist introduces a wide-spanned, slow-moving melodic idea based on, naturally, ascending half-steps, and we make our way to a fermata on the dominant chord in A major, presumably poised to begin the recapitulation. Here is the last part of the development section leading to that fermata on the dominant seventh chord in A major, complete with a decrescendoing flourish in the piano.
So it's likely that most listeners are going to expect the beginning of the recapitulation at this point. After all, we've arrived at the correct key, after side trips to a variety of other key centers, and a fermata on a dominant seventh chord. And those things, along with a ritardando, would typically lead us to believe that we've reached a major structural point in the movement. But we do not spring into a recapitulation of the first subject. Not yet. Apparently, we are not finished modulating. The tempo picks up again. We begin to crescendo again. And the violinist introduces a series of ascending eighth note chordal arpeggios, suggesting first A major and then a move to D minor. This against a stripped down piano accompaniment, which keeps reiterating a low A, which we presumably hear at this point as the dominant note in D minor. The violin then continues its cadenza like flourish, now cascading down the D harmonic minor scale. And soon, buttressed again by chords from the piano, we decrescendo to another fermata, this one on the dominant seventh of D minor, confirming apparently that it really is our goal. Or is it? you will probably be very little surprised that it is not. The violin drops out for a bit, and the piano sounds an A, but the next chord we hear is actually G minor. And in this new key of G minor, the piano very quietly introduces the first theme from the exposition, or at least a recognizable version of the first theme. You may remember that in the exposition, the first subject had seemingly begun in the key of D minor because it began on a D minor chord, but it soon became clear that that chord was actually functioning in the key of A minor, and just four bars later, we found ourselves securely in A minor. The same sort of thing happens here. We may begin on a G minor chord, but it soon becomes clear that we're really in D minor. But wait. If this is really the recapitulation, aren't the main themes supposed to now be restated all in the original tonic key? Yes, but how many times have we seen Beethoven take liberties with sonata form before? And not just Beethoven, of course. His mentors had done so as well, although Beethoven plays these tricks more frequently. So we probably have to consider this a false recapitulation because it's in the wrong key, and it is a little different presentation of the theme, starting with the piano as it does, and with the violin only joining in after four bars. There are other differences as well. When this version of the theme comes to a cadence and fermata ten bars later, it does not proceed to a repeat of the theme as in the exposition, but instead moves on to a new version of the original transition, which again repeats a series of ascending half-steps in the violin, but with a completely reconfigured piano part that itself features a lot of half-step movement. And naturally, the modulatory goal will not be the same. We're not headed back to the key of the dominant here. We're actually headed back to the original tonic of A minor. Here is the false recapitulation of the first subject, starting in G minor, ending up in F major, followed by the modified transition. The most surprising thing about the transition is what it transitions to. 
which turns out to be another presentation of the first theme, this time in the original key of A minor. So that second version of the theme has to be considered the beginning of the real recapitulation. But it's not so much the terminology that's important here, but the fact that Beethoven is trying to give us a new experience, even though he's exploiting the same familiar theme, by bringing it back in an unexpected key and in an unexpected place. After another transition based on the one from the exposition, we finally encounter the second subject, this time in A major. We've actually heard remarkably little from this theme. Beethoven never really evokes its essence in the development section. Here, in the recapitulation, it's provided with a slightly fuller texture, and the violin melody is heard a fourth higher here. But there are no other important differences, and so I'm going to skip over it and the transition that follows it as well. When we arrive at the recapitulation of the third theme, there are at least a few notable differences. We're in A minor now, and the piano presents the theme down a fifth, giving it a darker and probably more dramatic feel. The violin's version of the theme, on the other hand, is heard up a fourth and sounds considerably more brilliant and agitated, perhaps even strident in places, although that is to some extent dependent on the performer's approach. Once again, as we leave the third theme and approach the section based on the original Codetta, we get the sense of almost frantic activity as the violinist is pushed toward the upper extremes of her range. Here is some of that passage. But Beethoven is not simply going to charge ahead in this manner to the end of the movement. He does slow the momentum down very purposely by inserting a passage built on a massive decrescendo in the piano figuration patterns beneath long sustained lines in the violin. But before long, he reverses field and begins to crescendo into another quotation of the first subject, fortissimo this time, in three octaves and from that he builds another massive climax with both instruments climbing the ladder in a pattern which combines half-steps and octaves. Here's the passage beginning with the D crescendo.
And so yet another passionate climax. But there is soon yet another break in the action for a pensive moment, or at least a few seconds, shifting to adagio and introducing four whole-note chords vaguely reminiscent of those heard at the end of the exposition and earlier in the coda, but now hinting first at D minor before collapsing back to a somber A minor. But we don't finish somberly. Instead, the quick tempo returns, and it's a race to the final cadence. It's a remarkable movement, especially starting from the point at which the third subject is introduced. It may well be unrivaled in terms of intensity in the works composed to this point by Beethoven, and the virtuosity and simply the endurance demanded of the violinist puts it in a class by itself. And of course there is then Tolstoy's famous response to the work in his novella titled The Kreutzer Sonata. Tolstoy was a talented musical amateur and had been particularly impressed with hearing Beethoven's Opus 47 Sonata in performance, but he also seemed to suggest, later in his life, that Beethoven may have ruined music by his overly intense expression of emotion. Tolstoy's characterization of the first movement of the sonata in his novella is usually assumed to be a critique based on music's ability to evoke excessive sensuality, which eventually leads to the breakdown of morality and destroys the family. But it actually might be a little more complex than that. Tolstoy's main character, who has just listened to the sonata performed in his own home by his wife as pianist and a visiting violinist whom his wife has befriended, states, they say music stirs the soul. Stupidity, a lie. It acts frightfully, I speak for myself, but not in an ennobling way. It acts neither in an ennobling way nor a debasing way, but in an irritating way. How shall I say it? Music makes me forget my real situation. It transports me into a state which is not my own. Under the influence of music, I really seem to feel what I do not feel, to understand what I do not understand, to have powers which I cannot have. Later the character adds, music provokes an excitement which it does not bring to a conclusion, but to incite an energy of feeling which corresponds to neither the time nor the place and is expended in nothing cannot fail to act dangerously. Biographer Swafford, following this cue, 
suggests that this is one work by Beethoven, and there are not many, he argues, that is specifically attempting to communicate sexual passion. Is it true of the first movement of the Kreutzer Sonata? The answer is not obvious. Is the first subject suggestive in any way of sexual passion? Not in any obvious way. How about the slower second subject? I described it as warm and romantic sounding, but there is little about it to suggest deeper erotic content, although attractive, it is probably too conventional for that. That leaves the third subject, and it does, as you'll recall, have some very distinctive elements to it. It seems almost compulsive in its repetition of ascending half-step motives over the repeated tonic chord for four measures in a row, and then it opens up quickly, albeit very briefly, to other tonal centers in a way that suggests a surge of forward momentum. This act of surging forward really characterizes much of the work from that point on. We quiet, we slow down, we even pause for fermatas, but then we spring forward again, ever insistent and usually based on ideas from the third theme. Even when we arrive at the recapitulation and earlier ideas are brought back, we get only a faint sense of relaxation from tension, because that third theme and motives derived from it push us on again and again, sometimes frantically, until we reach the final conclusion in the coda. Can this be seen as sexual by analogy? Perhaps. Do we know if Beethoven himself thought of the movement in those terms? We do not. He may, in fact, have been embarrassed by such a notion. Nevertheless, we'll move on now to the final two movements, which we'll discuss much more briefly. By the way, Tolstoy's character in the novella says of the last two movements, After the presto followed the andante, not very new, with commonplace variations, and the feeble finale. Music historians, performers, and listeners have been somewhat kinder to the last two movements. But it must be admitted that the primary theme employed in the second movement is not one of Beethoven's more remarkable or memorable, although it makes an effective alternation of sentimental and noble gestures. The movement is in 2-4 time, F major and marked simply andante with variations. The first part of the theme is presented by the piano in a series of right-hand block chords over a repeated pedal on the dominant in the left hand. The theme begins piano, but in typical Beethovenian fashion, the rather gentle offbeat syncopations in the opening measures are punctuated by sforzando accents, not very evident, I must admit, in the recording you'll hear in a minute. The last bar of the phrase introduces a series of four ascending half-steps in a row and a certain yearning quality with an augmented chord that leans into the next phrase. Meanwhile, the left hand takes on a more active role starting in bar four, introducing some short motivic ideas that soon scatter throughout the texture. Here is the first part of that theme, starting and ending on the tonic chord, stated first by the piano alone and then handed to the violin.
The second part of the theme emphasizes the dominant chord, C major, and even implies a modulation to C major along the way, although it ends clearly enough in F major. It continues to exploit the offbeat accents to some extent, but adds new elements as well, including dotted rhythms and even some archaic-sounding trills. Then the violin returns with the first part of the theme, employing an alternate version of the first few bars of the melody. Here is the second part of the theme, played by the piano, ending on the tonic. This will be followed by a return of the first, more sentimental section featuring the violin, which employs an alternate version of the melody initially and again eventually ends on a tonic chord. The violinist then goes on to play its version of the second part of the theme, trills and all. We finally close the first opening statement of the theme, 54 measures altogether, with a last varied run-through of the first eight bars, violin and piano sharing the load. But we're going to move on now to the variations. There are four, but we're going to skip the rather frothy first variation, which favors the piano, and go to the second. It's in two repeated sections corresponding to the two parts of the theme described a minute ago. The original chord progressions are respected for the most part, and the melody is usually referenced, sometimes obviously, sometimes less so. The piano part is simple and rather repetitive, although not devoid of rhythmic energy. All of the emphasis, though, is on the violinist. Beethoven quickly establishes a pattern, which he sticks to through most of the section, consisting of four groups of 30-second notes per measure, with the last three notes usually a step higher, repeated. The first two are slurred, and the next two played staccato. What melodic movement there is occurs from the first beat of each group of four to the next first beat, and it is here where references to the original melody emerge. As in the original theme, he begins quietly and crescendos, the last few measures ending with a sweeping gesture, a rapid ascending scale, and a barrage of repeated notes. Here's the first section without repeat. The second section begins by varying the second part of the theme first and then concluding with the return of the first part. 
It's similar in its reliance on repeated patterns, but includes even more rigorous technical challenges for the violinist, who now has to work octave leaps into the 30-second note patterns. This is certainly music for a virtuoso, but it does seem as if Beethoven might be prioritizing virtuosity over more subtle musical values. Was Beethoven forcing the issue a bit in order to provide Bridge Tower with a vehicle that would dazzle the audience and show off his apparently formidable technique to its greatest advantage? Or is this just indicative of the composer's desire to provide contrast to the intensity of the first movement? Perhaps a little bit of both. We'll move on now to Variation 3, the minor key variation. I usually include these in the discussion because so frequently the minor key transformation of a major key theme reveals a lot of unexpected potential. In this case, it would perhaps be safer to say a little unexpected potential. The first section follows the eight-measure format with the piano leading the way, and in fact, the piano takes on a more important role throughout. The violin melody again makes reference to the original theme, but of course the theme itself is somewhat more somber-sounding in its minor key manifestation. Harmonically, it's a bit more interesting than in the original version, even introducing an effective chromatic chord, a Neapolitan sixth chord, three measures before the end of the section. The second section is altogether more interesting, the sinuous chromaticism now taking on a very different cast and becoming pensive, even searching. Here is the first part of that second section. The fourth variation largely reverts to the style of the first and second, 
with the pianist now taking up some of the figuration patterns earlier assigned just to the violin. But the violin naturally gets its chance to sparkle as well. Here's just a little bit of it. So, except for the minor key variation, a light and entertaining movement that contrasts sharply with the first. Which way will the finale lean? Toward the emotional intensity of the first, or the mostly lighthearted playfulness of the second? We're going to concentrate on the main themes of the exposition only. It's in A major, Mark Presto again, after an initial tonic chord sustained by a fermata. It's in sonata form but its initial bouncy melody in 6-8 seems more like a rondo theme. Here's the opening and first subject, of which Tolstoy's character referred to as the feeble finale. It's not difficult to see how this theme inspired others in the first movement of this work, and to a lesser extent, the theme from the second movement. But a listener might well feel that the source material here was of considerably less weight than the themes it spawned, especially the third or closing theme in the first movement. Of course, weight isn't everything, especially considering that at this point in the early 19th century, it was still the custom to have the weightiest movement first, although that does change as we move further into the century. If the theme seems quite carefree, a number of commentators have pointed out that the harmonies are at times somewhat unexpected, actually putting the key in doubt in a few places, but never for long, and we end securely in A major, only to immediately start up the transition that will take us to the second subject. You heard a little of that transition at the end of my excerpt. The second subject in E major continues the jaunty mood, but begins by heading up the scale for four bars, landing an octave higher, and then making its way down very cleverly, abetted by downbeat grace notes. Then it repeats itself, but down a whole step, seemingly shifting the whole operation to D major and then for a few bars to A major. He manages to tilt us back in the direction of E major, 
but then the tune is handed to the piano with accompanying arpeggios from the violin, and the piano takes us right back to D major. Here's the first part of the second subject. Once the piano has finished its version of the theme, we head to a transition to the closing subject, which very much continues the frolicsome spirit of the second subject. But there is a significant and unexpected interruption of this frivolity before the exposition closes, and it comes in the form of a change of meter and mood as we quiet to piano shift to 2-4 time and introduce a pensive little, relatively slow-moving passage of seven bars, the violin doubling the piano melody an octave higher and ending on a solid cadence on E major. A single measure of 6-8 breaks through at that point with a couple of forte exclamation marks, and the piano alone returns to repeat its new idea an octave higher, but still quietly. Then the violinist rejoins, again doubling the piano as the tempo gradually slows, all of this concluding with four sustained chords on F-sharp minor. But a second later, the tempo returns to its original presto, we're back in 6-8, and both instruments introduce extended trills, perhaps a forerunner to the trills from the earlier movements while the piano left hand propels us ahead with a skyrocketing arpeggio. Then the galloping rhythms that dominated both the first and second subjects return to take us to the end of the exposition, the first ending before the repeat in my excerpt. It's hard to know what that pensive little inserted passage in 2-4 is meant to indicate. I'm not suggesting that there is necessarily any programmatic explanation for it. Perhaps it's just a reminder to the listener that the most frolicsome moods can be interrupted by more serious or poignant moments. Or perhaps it's just a way of slowing down the momentum temporarily 
so that the galloping 6-8 rhythms of the theme can seem fresh and all the more energetic when they resume. At any rate, it's an interesting ploy and more evidence of the fact that the finale, cast off from its original home in Beethoven's earlier violin sonata, enacting in this one as a repository of thematic ideas to be used in the other two movements, evidence that while this finale may pale before the exceptional first movement of the sonata, it is rather more worthy than Tolstoy, or at least his main character, allowed. For our next episode, we'll turn back the clock a bit to look at Beethoven's Romances for Violin and Orchestra works which may not challenge the traditional stylistic parameters of the period, but which nevertheless have remained attractive to audiences even to the present.